If you would open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40 this morning, we have finished the uh, book of James in the New Testament. We'll finish up Isaiah from last year, and uh, then we'll go to the book of Revelation next year, God willing, is the plan. We, uh, right in Isaiah 40, we're, we're between two books. Now, I've seen plenty of righteous people suffer hard things, and this proverb that I'm about to read, I'm about to quote a proverb, it doesn't apply to uh, every bad situation you face. But Proverbs 13.21 does say this, disaster pursues sinners. Disaster pursues sinners. And and now if you're in the midst of a disaster, that doesn't mean necessarily it's because of sin. But I've had plenty of disasters with my own fingerprints all over them. And and, and sometimes as you're facing disaster from sin, you may feel like God is just slamming you twice as hard as you deserve. And that sentiment, that feeling may not be inaccurate. You may be literally suffering twice what you deserve. Today's text in Isaiah 40 will cover that prospect. Uh, it also deals with God's comfort to Jerusalem, and uh, as Jerusalem has been repaid double for her sin. Uh, last year we covered Isaiah chapter 1 through 39, big emphasis on judgment on the nations around Israel, big emphasis on judgment on the nations. Chapter 40, a lot of people call chapter 40 through the end of the book, book 2 of Isaiah, because it's just so different in its tone. It's, it's really a tone of promise. It's a tone of comfort. It's, a, uh, uh, it's messianic, a lot of, of promises concerning Jesus in what uh, many will call book 2 of Isaiah. While they may call it book 1 and book 2, uh, it, they appear together in the scriptures. God has uh, joined them together, and uh, they are one book. Now, just to look back where we were uh, when we were last in Isaiah, if you go to chapter 39, verse 5, uh, we're going to see this prophecy being given. And, and even this prophecy uh, occurs 15 years earlier than the chapters before it. It's a little bit anachronous. It's not all laid out in exact order, um, but... Um, In chapter 39, verse 5, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who come from you, whom you will father shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon." Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, and I'm taking Hezekiah here to to be saying this in good faith, that he's not just simply saying, oh good, at least things are fine in my days. Uh, It's going to happen after I'm gone. I don't think that's his heart. I think what he's saying is God has been merciful and he's going to delay this through my days. And and it's undeserved, but but I'm going to be grateful for what he has given here because Hezekiah says in verse 8, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days, which is exactly what God had promised. And so he is thankful to God for that. So uh, we end chapter 39 with this judgment, and it's a big judgment. Uh, Judah is going to be carried away to Babylon. And, uh, and, and so that is what is next. Now, Isaiah is, is, is 72 years old when Hezekiah, his king, dies. He's 72 but tradition says he lived a lot longer. And so as he lives, as he prophesies, uh, the thought is here that he is prophesying concerning that future judgment in Babylon and coming out of that future judgment in Babylon. So with that in mind, let's look at, uh, at chapter 40, verse 1. We're going to read the first eight verses here today. 
Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare or hardship is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill will be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, or someone said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely uh, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. God, as we look to your word today, we thank you for the promises and the the acknowledgement that the way of sin is hard and judgment can be hard and that, Father, uh, the feeling that we can sometimes have that we're receiving more than we are even due for our sin, uh, that 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 is not uh, an illegitimate feeling, that that is, in fact, fact in certain circumstances. God, I pray that you'd help us to look to your word and understand these things and understand the surety of the promises that are in your word today. God, help us to be your servants Help us, Lord, to cling to you, to recognize that, that the things that we live around, the people we live around are all grass to be burned up, but that your word and your promises stand forever. Help us to live for forever with that as our goal, to be with you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin our study, I just want to stop and think about Isaiah in this point of history, um, because Isaiah spoke to kings. Uh, he both prophesied for them and he prophesied against them. It's a fascinating position of prestige, but it also had its level of peril. So uh, as we consider the um, lessons of Isaiah's life, uh, understand his age. Uh, when, um, when the events with Sennacherib happened in 701 BC, he would have been 69 years old. When Hezekiah, his king, died, he would have been 72 years old. And, of course, we just left off with this rebuke that, that, that uh, Isaiah had given to the king, a grand rebuke, that there was going to be a dispersion, a, a, a captivity in Babylon. Now, if you're the prophet Isaiah and you're 69 years old and you have prophesied for the king and Sennacherib comes and loses 185,000 men in one night, uh, you would think you've kind of arrived, that... Uh, You know, I'm an old man. I've prophesied against the king. He withstood it. I prophesied for the king, and God delivered him. And there ought to be some reputation. There ought to be some kudos. There ought to be some ability now to live in peace and to die in peace. But history tells us that that did not happen. Uh, uh, Hezekiah had a son named Manasseh. Manasseh began a co-regency at age 12, and that's Odd. Why would you as king have a co-regency with a 12-year-old? Well, because Hezekiah had been given 15 years to live. When he got ill and, and when he repented, God said, okay, I'm going to give you 15 more years. So he knew his time was marked. He believed his time was marked. He believed the promise of God. And so he began this co-regency. Well, Manasseh lasted 55 years. So he had a very, very long range. Uh, uh, reign. But um, uh, you, uh, 
the Bible says that Manasseh became a very, very wicked king. If you would turn to 2 Kings 21, I just want to uh, show you a couple of things about Manasseh and what history tells us about Isaiah. Not the Bible, so this is not infallible truth I'm giving you about Isaiah's end, but it is history. And uh, some of that history has some fanciful traditions, but here's the deal. Um, Manasseh ended up killing Isaiah. Uh, Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, ended up killing Isaiah. And uh, history says that he killed him by sawing him in two. Now, Hebrews 11 talks about those who had been sawn in two. We don't have any biblical record of that happening to anyone. But in Jewish literature, this is common knowledge that this happened to Isaiah. Uh, Now, in 2 Kings 21, if you're there, the first 10 verses we'll skip, but just the summary of them is that this King Manasseh began worshiping Baal, Asherah. He, He began using fortune tellers, necromancers. He even burned one of his sons as a sacrifice. So we pick it up with that knowledge in 2 Kings 21, verse 10. And the Lord said, by his servants, the prophets... And, and the pulpit commentary identifies the probable prophets there are Isaiah, Habakkuk, Nahum, and Zephaniah. Okay, but the word, the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down, and I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what was evil in my sight, and have provoked me to anger since the days their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Now, if you're a prophet and you're giving that kind of a message to a king, that is a perilous position to be placed in. Uh, Keep reading here in verse number 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Besides the sin that he made Judah to sin so that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sin that he had committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers. Now that sounds like a peaceful end, doesn't it? He slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon his son reigned in his place. Um, The... The understanding in history is that he killed Isaiah. Jeremiah 2, verse 30 says, Your own sword, speaking to Jerusalem, your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. Okay, so history tells us, the Bible tells us, many prophets died. And this prophet died by being sawn in two. Now, I don't know if he had a merciful death, pierced with a sword and a vital organ, and then his remains were sawn in two. Or if this was a torturous death to cause fear to the king's enemies, where the epidermis, the muscle, the bone, uh, it works as the saw works its way through a painful death to find a vital organ or to allow you to bleed out. Uh, it, It sounds like a brutal death. It is certainly a dishonoring death 
uh, at the very least. And then did you like that little notation about how Manasseh died? He slept with his fathers. And whenever I see that, I'm always like, well, that sounds like a man of God dying. Well, there's more to the story of Manasseh. He had a 55-year reign. Now, Sennacherib, king of the Assyrians, he didn't touch Jerusalem ever again. After losing 185,000 men in a single night, he never touched Jerusalem again. But his, his uh, successor did. And his successor caught Manasseh. And you can read about this. I think it's 2 Chronicles 33. I have it noted here. Um, yeah, 2 Chronicles 33. You can read about this later. But Manasseh was placed in a dungeon in Assyria. He was being tortured. And he humbled himself before God. He repented toward God. He called out to God for help. God answered his prayer, restored him. He, he destroyed all of the idol worship in Israel. Uh, the Bible does note he still, he, he made it all Yahweh worship, but he did allow Yahweh worship on the high places. He wasn't perfect, but he became very much a man and a king of God. And so perhaps that's why we see his death noted that he slept with his fathers. He was buried in this garden uh, because there was so much more to the story. Now, I say all of that, I mention all of that to say this. God can dispose of your life and my life any way he sees fit. You can be an, a, a prophet at the age of 72, having served God well, having great notoriety for being a faithful prophet of God, and yet you could be sawn into two pieces. And then, that king who does that to you, God can redeem him. God can be reconciled to that king. Think of this, Manasseh and Isaiah in heaven today together. Now, you know Manasseh feels awful about the sin and the people he sent. In fact, I, I bet all of us are going to have some times where we're going to meet some people in heaven and we're going to feel awful about what we did. But we serve a God who is in the reconciliation business. He reconciles his enemies and when they demonstrate, how do they demonstrate they're enemies of God but by, but by being an enemy toward you? And God can choose to end your life by having it sawn in two after a lifetime of faithful service. And then your persecutor, he can save and redeem and bring into eternal fellowship with you. Think of your greatest enemy in this life. The person maybe you're even tempted to hate. Think of God saving them, sanctifying them, being glorified in them, and, and being glorified in you and how you receive them in this lifetime as a convert to Christ, or even how you reached out to them in the midst of the persecution. But more than that, just think of the sovereignty of God and choosing how to move in your life and, and how he moves as he pleases, and life doesn't end the way we would expect. Isaiah would have never have written this ending for his life. But it's a glorious, epic ending that demonstrates the sovereignty of our God over his servants. Stunning. Okay, so as we get into Isaiah chapter 40 here, God speaks tender comfort to Jerusalem after her punishment. Verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. That word cry is not to bawl. That word cry is to herald or announce. Cry to her that her warfare or hardship is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. So note the three verbs, comfort, comfort, speak tenderly, 
and cry or announce. There is something very urgent that God wants to communicate to Jerusalem. Isaiah had, had prophesied of a coming exile to Babylon, and we read about that in such a clinical manner. It just just seems so storybook to us. Oh, yes, they had an exile. And and, and we read about Daniel uh, becoming a eunuch in King Nebuchadnezzar's court as as if it were a field trip with him and three of his friends. You know, oh, we're going to go start, you know. He became a eunuch. And and so whatever that involved in that era of history, he became a eunuch. Uh, And and there was fear that, that there were relatives back home that had died. And he is taken captive, and things are done to him that he would not wish to have done to him. And this man suffered. It was not clinical. Um, So we tend to minimize people's suffering in the Bible. God doesn't do this. Uh, uh, He doesn't minimize the... uh, Look at the word comfort. It appears twice in verse number one. Do you see that? Comfort, comfort. Uh, when it appears twice, that's to add emotional emphasis. Uh, you know, you, you just, there, there's no audible voice, but, but there are words in the inspired Word of God, and comfort, comfort is to add emphasis that God really wants to comfort His people after their punishment is complete. Who is God speaking to? Who is supposed to comfort? Who is supposed to speak tenderly? Who is supposed to announce peace to Israel? Well, the subject is indefinite. Uh, even, even as we, even as we uh, look at um, uh, in verse number 6, where a voice says, cry, and I said in our text, and I said in the Hebrew, it's and he said. It says, and someone said. We don't know who. And the subject of who's supposed to comfort, who's supposed to cry, who's supposed to herald this news is indefinite. It seems like anyone reading this is supposed to share this news. It is rather like the gospel. You are not a spectator to the most divine, epic plot in history and human affairs. You are not just a spectator. You are a herald. You are to comfort. You are to proclaim when you... Watch a movie and they've got a stadium full of people. You know, the actors are in the center and maybe there's some secondary and tertiary actors, but then you've got all the extras. The extras just fill space, right? They, they, they just fill space. There are no extras in the church of God. Everybody is a part to the body. Everybody has a function here. Uh, for you video gamers, you've got non-player characters. They just go about their life while the world is blowing up around them. And, and they don't affect the game. They don't, they don't play a role. There, there are no NPCs in God's program. Uh, we, we are given the responsibility to herald, to, to declare the truth, to comfort the people of God. And God wants this tender message to be heard from all directions by people who are hurting from sin. The word tenderly uh, there, it says, uh, uh, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Uh, That is the word heart. Uh, It's from God's inner disposition. God is speaking from his heart to sinners. Speak tenderly. Speak God's heart to sinners. In Isaiah 35, says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. So God wants a message of comfort for his people, who he has punished. 
God's punishment in your life is not designed to alienate you forever. It's designed to direct you toward a close relationship to the God of the universe, a relationship in which you will find comfort. This double punishment, um, Isaiah spoke of it. Uh, 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 Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 16, 18, but first I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. This idea of multifold punishment, here double punishment for sins, it's typically an act that defers future choices to sin. In the future, double punishment in the future will be just that extra prod to tell you, I don't want to go there again. Life was hard. There was nowhere to turn. I do not want to go there again. You and I can be like children. All we care about is the here and now. I don't like this. I want this shiny object. We want what we want and we think about the moment. And as awful as double punishment is for sin... While you're enduring it to the degree that it spares you in the future, it's a loving thing to be so deterred with double punishment in the future, to not go back there in the path of sin. Three of our children grew up as toddlers along a river. And, uh, you know, uh, three of our five children grew up along this river. And what toddler isn't, doesn't love water? Moving water. And yet a river can be a dangerous place to live. Uh, it can sweep someone away, especially when the floodwaters are up a little bit, even a little bit. A toddler can get swept up. And so we had a rule, you don't go into the woods, which there's about 20 foot of woods that led to the river. Well, each of the three toddlers made at least one trek down to the river, thinking they were unsupervised. They were supervised the whole time. And there was already a parental plan for double punishment all the way back to the house. That would be a trip they would not make again. And uh, the design was not to be cruel. It was not to alienate our children. It was designed to save their lives. It was a very effective means of punishment. So think about the ways in which you have sinned. Think about the repercussions for your life. In some cases, it can be as hard as the exile from Israel. Uh, you're, you're trying to put your life back together, and you can't step there, and you can't go there. And it just seems like you're impeded just from putting the pieces back together of relationships, of finances, of a, of a, of a career, of a work world, whatever it might be. Watching, you know, watching family members suffer. You have been punished double, perhaps, for your, all your sin. To what end? Does God hate you? Or has he brought you here to speak tenderly to you from his word, even today, to speak tenderly and to let you know that he is here to, to comfort you and to provide for you now? Yes, uh, how this life ends for you, I don't know. But eternally, he's providing for you gloriously and the promises of God are ultimately eternal. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says our God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare, her hardship is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord double for all her sins. As we continue at point number three, though once judged with double judgment, God promises Jerusalem a royal visit in verses three through five. 
A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There is a, uh, perhaps this is hyperbole, although I do understand that the Mount of Olives is to be split. And, uh, and, and that there are going to be changes in the landscape of Jerusalem at the second coming in glory. But there is certainly a metaphor here of, of preparing a highway for a king. And uh, I've been in third world countries, developing countries, and, and what you'll find, uh, in, even in large townships, you'll have a road as wide as this room. It'll be 60 feet wide. And yet driving it involves going from that side of the road to this side of the road, and maybe here we go through the middle. And what you're trying to avoid are heaves and potholes, potholes that are bigger in diameter than your vehicle, and, and, and bumps in the road that if you were to get uh, stretched across them, the frame of your, your vehicle could get hung up on them. And, and so, you, you, you know, the, the roads after a few rains and people just don't maintain roads and, you know, they're, they're dirt roads, gravel roads, they just get really bad. And so you're doing this uh, to get anywhere and six miles can take you an hour. Okay, but in these areas, every once in a while, the monarch or the president will be scheduled for a visit. Guess what happens to the roads? Somebody finds a bulldozer. And somebody levels those roads perfectly. I mean, it just, you're just, he, that, he's not going to be bumping around and turning around. The, the monarch is just going to sail right through this beautiful town and they're going to make sure. That's the metaphor here. Prepare a way for the king. Because he's going to come from the desert. He's going to come from the wilderness right here to Jerusalem. And mountains will be leveled. Valleys will be filled in. Now, if that's hyperbole or if that's literal for end times, I, I don't know. I do know there will be geographical, uh, uh, geological uh, changes at, at the end times, but um, John the Baptist metaphorically said that's exactly what he was doing. He was filling in valleys and knocking down mountains, preaching a baptism of repentance. Uh, so, so listen to John chapter 1, verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, he had been, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And so John said, my ministry here is I am preparing a way of the Lord. I am making the, the valleys level. I am knocking down mountains. I am calling men to repentance to prepare their hearts to meet their king. Jesus' visit to Jerusalem is taking place in two stages. We had his earthly ministry 2,000 years ago. He blessed Israel with more than they could ever imagine. In fact, they so much couldn't imagine that they rejected it. He blessed them with salvation from their sin. Just think about it. Your biggest problem in life and my biggest problem, the Jews' biggest problem is our sin and the impending judgment for our sin. And he took that away. He delivered them. Eternal damnation in hell for sin solved by Jesus Christ offering himself in our stead. 
He will make a second visit in royal splendor, delivering Jerusalem from physical enemies when he does so, making straight in the desert a highway for our God. John was doing this in the hearts of men, calling them to repentance. By the way, highway is not an interstate. It would be a path. It would be a road. If you're imagining Highway 52, it's not that. As you think about sin, you tend to minimize it a little bit and say, well, you know, mountains, valleys. Is my sin really that bad? Uh, your, your sin is not like the roads in a developing country where you've got potholes and mounds. Uh, it, there are truly mountainous obstacles in your life. There are treacherous cliffs that lead to valleys that will destroy you and others. Uh, so yes, mountains and valleys. I, I think that the metaphor fits our sin quite well. The voice tells us to cry, that, that tells us to cry out gives us the message that we are to carry. Man will perish, but the word of God will endure. Look at verse 6. A voice said, cry, and someone said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The first part of this message is that man will perish. This is both good news and bad news. In terms of our enemies, their days are limited. In terms of those who exercise uh, wicked power over our lives, their days are limited. The sobering side of this truth, our days are limited too. We, like them, know that we will face an end. It's a simple message. It's an obvious message. But something inside us wants to avoid it. We all die. We all know it. It touches everyone from your doctor to your mechanic. It is the most relevant fact in their life, but talking about it is taboo, or at least it's uncomfortable. And what is the message for our doctor, for our mechanic? Verses 1 and 2, God punishes for sin, sometimes doubly, but he comforts, he offers comfort, he seeks your peace. Verses 3 through 5, God will reveal his glory in all creation, prepare a way for him. Verses 6 through 8, humanity and human uh, conventions will all reach their end. But God's word and God's promises are eternal. This is the narrative of history. This is the epic into which you have been born. You can trust the word of God that all will come to pass. The, the gospel message is simple, but it must be repeated. It must be told. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It is a simple message that a five-year-old can understand, and yet we adults will spend our lives understanding its depths. Your relationship with God hinges entirely on your faith in Jesus Christ. And so I would ask you, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? A lot of people don't. They won't repent of their sin because they love their sin. To place faith in Jesus is to turn from sin. I just read John 3.16. John 3.19 says, And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light 
lest his works be exposed. To come to Jesus is to turn from your sin. It's, it's to willingly have your sins exposed and dealt with. So our message to one another, our message to the world is to come to Jesus and live. The promises of God are forever. Man will die. God's word will stand. So today as we ease back into Isaiah, we see that God punishes sin and God offers comfort. As we leave this text, I'm stricken with four things. Number one, you are called to cry out to humanity, to herald the truth of God's judgment and God's compassion. You're not an extra on set. You're not an NPC. Uh, you're, God has invited you into, to bring eternal truth to humanity. God has involved you in the universe's greatest epic between good and evil. You have a role to play. It may not be a leading part. Hey, we're in southeast Minnesota. None of us have leading parts here. We are all small players in a corner, but we've been given a role to play. The second thing, God may use you to rebuke kings. And then just when you think life has arrived and you know how peacefully it's going to end, (laughs) he may have some dreadfully different plan for Isaiah having his flesh ripped into two pieces. And then, he can draw your abuser into a right relationship with him, forgive him of that sin and so many others based on the suffering of Jesus. And your abuser could become your eternal brother, your eternal sister. God is sovereign, wonderfully so. We need to trust him. His word is eternal. The third thing, God can punish you double for all your sin. That is a thing. Yeah, you, you might feel like, I know what I did, but I don't deserve this. Right, it's double punishment. God in his sovereign purposes, like a parent guarding a child next to a river, just might have some really good reasons for what seems like an imbalanced response to your sin. And then finally, the most important truth, the most enduring truth is in the universe comes from this word that you and I are responsible to share. Uh, this will stand. This is what you live your life. Uh, this is the basis of your life. God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. You are a father. You discipline as you see fit. And uh, Father, we, we don't ask for double discipline. No, no thinking person would ask for that. But Father, when you decree that it is the good thing in our lives, I pray that you'd help us to accept that. God, might we not accuse you. Might we say, let God be true and all men liars, including ourselves. And God, might we quietly and humbly submit to whatever you have for our lives. Father, I pray that you would help us to be faithful in serving you. Uh, God, help us to be sharing divine truth in whatever corner of the world you place us. I pray that we would be your agents for eternal purpose. And God, I pray that you would just help us to to place as a foundation of our life your word. Your word is eternal. Your truth is true. Bless us to walk with you. Bless us to live for you as in the way we should. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.